0: This is The Cindy Adams Show, 77 WABC.
1: Hi, it's me, Madam Adams, Cindy Adams, the same Madam Adams who harangues you in my column Monday through Thursday, four times a week, every week in the New York Post. You're stuck with me. Right now, for whatever the reason, I'm just in the mood to dish. I feel like telling you a funny story, a happening that happened to me. I will connect it to what we'll deal with in terms of what's soon to be happening here. It connects. But first, I have to give you the background. Back in the late 50s, a long, long time ago, in what would now seem a galaxy far away, was the hottest then long-time weekly sitcom on what was then the hottest new medium ever invented, television television little black-and-white box that we never had before. And on CBS, it starred the then highest-paid comedian. This long-ago, long-time hottest comedy show was called The Honeymooners. It star, the then really big-shot comedian, now gone, Jackie Gleason. People would hold house parties together in those days, just to watch this show. Jackie Gleason's TV character was to play a Brooklyn bus driver named Ralph Cramden. His wife was played by Joyce Randolph. His neighbor in the sitcom was played by a popular comic performer in those days named Art Carney. He played the role of a guy working in the sewer. And his attitude was to play bus driver Gleason's devoted, but not very savvy, pal. Now, before I go further, this show is now coming back in a slightly different, more modern form, and I'll tell you all about that in a minute. Right now, I just want to tell you an incident with this rich, rich, mega-famous, super-successful comic star, Jackie Gleason, who was then... Television's number one cash register. We lived in Fifth Avenue's same high rise apartment building. I had the tenth floor overlooking the park. Our close friend Jackie Gleason had the penthouse. His bedroom was in all red, flocked wallpaper. If you don't know what flocking is, it was like a velvet fuzz that was on the top of the paper. That was the whole bedroom. My husband, comedian Joey Adams, who was president of all the actors, and Jackie were buddy-buddy. So, one day our doorbell rang. I answered it. It's Gleason. He's on his hands and knees in front of the door. Now, you have to know Gleason was a big guy. He was also a spender, a gambler, and a drinker. And he said to me, on hands and knees, tell Joey I'm broke, busted. I need bread. Tell him I right away need three grand. Understand, in those days, before our everyday credit cards that we now carry, guys had access to cash. They all carried green. So no questions asked. Joey peeled off $3,000. That very same night, we all had dinner together in what was then a famous restaurant called Toots Shores. What you won't believe, Gleason blew that whole $3,000 on hiring a band to serenade Joey. And then Joey had to pick up the check. And now to bring that story up to date... Coming soon to us is the same newly juiced up TV sitcom, The Honeymooners. It's returning to CBS TV. It'll be updated and different, but it's the same basic premise. This new one will be a female-driven remake. Lady writer, lady director, more I cannot tell you, more I do not know. It's soon to be on its way to us. I only hope the crew... (laughs) Doesn't need to bother borrowing money from me. Okay, like I say, I feel like burbling. Well, one more story. Then maybe I will go into doing an interview. I want to tell you this one. A few intrepid souls are now starting to go into traveling a bit, even risking flying to Europe for some weather vacation, warm weather. So, with this story, think of Morocco, Marrakech, great, great city. It has the famous Mamounia Hotel. My friend does PR for the most famous places internationally. He was at the Mamounia in Marrakech. As he arrived, the management told him, no soul on earth, no human in the galaxy may know That the lady who runs and owns Versace, Versace's blonde sister who became the boss, Donatella Versace, was actually there in the hotel then, in person, at that exact time. But, said the management to my friend, shh, keep it mum, quiet, secret, on the QT. Nobody must know. She wants no attention. She demands she stay incognito. Yeah, okay, so fine. So she comes down to the pool area the next morning with her entourage, not alone. Only bells and whistles were missing. In front of her, two bodyguards. On each side, A trainer, her assistant, her secretary, uniformed police in front and back, plus a masseuse. And just so you shouldn't notice her, she had long yellow hair and was bare-breasted. We shouldn't notice that she's there, right? And there's a row of beach chairs roped off for her and her crew, so nobody can sit on them or move them. Plus, there is some dumbass security guard standing watch over these chairs, but nobody should know Donatella Versace is there. And then, with no clothes on top, she lies in the same chair in the sun as the masseuse Gives her a full body massage. But nobody is to know Donna Tella Versace is in the house. That's one of my many things. I got more stories. I'm in the mood to burble. Another thing. I feel like burbling. So don't hang up. I'll get better. I'll get better. But another thing I want to tell you. Britain's Oscar winner actor, Sir Michael Caine, his eyeglasses are now for sale. His Rolex watch also. He's cleaning house. But everybody's cleaning house. Since the pandemic, everybody's cleaning. Everybody's schlepping out old clothes, throwing out old lovers, new clothes, new lovers, borrowed clothes, rags, clothes that need cleaning, old files, closets and shelves that haven't been opened ever. Listen, I was married a lifetime, like long back like back when the subway was still a nickel, and I just came across cleaning out a dusty file, my late husband's divorce papers from his first wife. I mean, we're all cleaning. So now, the London Auction House Bonhams will now hammer Michael Caine's stuff. It's going to be on March 3rd. He has a gold quartz watch, an antique timepiece that's up for $11,000. The eyeglasses are cheaper. How much, I don't know. Just take a shot and call them, not me. I'm in the mood to tell stories, so I'm going to tell another one. How about one of Patti LaBelle? La Belle is a good eater, and she loves to save money. So one day I'm visiting her in a hotel, a big city, nice, high class hotel, five star. She's staying in a suite. I get off the elevator on her floor and I smell something, a strong smell, like food, like it's permeating the whole hallway. We're not talking Chanel number five here. We are talking like right off the elevator. It smells like a crappy diner. I bang on the door. She opens it, and there's the smell. The whole place reeks of liver and onions. Patty LaBelle, she says to me, I'm cooking dinner. You're doing what? You're cooking dinner? What? We're inside her hotel living room, and there's one whole trunk open. It's filled with spices, jars, pans, plates, cutlery, electric stuff, pots, pans, jars of sauces, dishes. Next to the sofa, she's cooking dinner. She says to me, well, tonight it's liver and onions. Liver and onions? You're cooking liver and onions, raw onions? And in front of me is a big, wet slab of some lousy red raw liver in a hotel living room right next to a maroon silk sofa. I said to her, Patty, what the hell are you doing? She says, when she's on the road, she travels with several trunks, one of which is just her kitchen. She says she's used to send up room service. And one day, a hotel charged $75 for a chopped meat plate. Really? It's just hamburger, she said. It was $75. And what she said was, it was, I'm not allowed to say the word. It's one of the seven words we are not allowed to say on the air. But that's what it was. And she used a not nice word. And then she said, Patty LaBelle, don't eat And then she used the same not nice word. And then she reused that word. When I finally left after our interview, she said, tomorrow I'm making shrimp Creole. I am now going to go into a high-class station break.
0: All the dish that's fit to air, Cindy Adams is on 77 WABC.
1: Okay, I'm about to talk to Scott Stringer. He was born here, educated here, lives here, families here, went to university here. He was an assemblyman here. He was a borough president here. He was New York City's controller here. He ran for mayor here. He married here. He had children here. You know, that's a pain in the ass. I know everything about you. Like me, he is a hardcore, we ain't going to live anywhere else ever, New Yorker. So, Scott, tell me, what does a controller do? Do you actually open our envelopes when we send our tax money to
0: the city? Well, the job of controller is literally to keep everybody honest, the mayor, the city agencies, the pension fund. And for eight years, my job was to root out wasted fraud, to expose when the mayor was on the wrong path. And in my case with de Blasio, that was most of the time I was in office. <laughs> and it's an office that, you know, people don't even know what to call a controller or controller, but it's a $100 million budget, two hundred billion dollar pension fund protects the retirement security of uh, 700,000 people so it's it's an, it's a pretty incredible responsibility
1: look i don't knock our politicians even though some of them in albany have been on parole but why is your thing your career why why did you pick strictly new york politics
0: well i i'm a kid as, as you mentioned in the introduction i'm a kids from New York City growing up in Washington Heights. And, you know, back in the 70s when the city was on the edge of bankruptcy, you know, a lot of us kids, you know, it was it was tough living. You know, there were 2,000 murders a year back then. Uh, it was a tough time to live. But I got lucky because my parents were involved in politics. My dad worked for A-Beam, former controller. My mom was a city council member when women didn't run for office. And my cousin, Bella Abzug, uh, really got me involved in politics. I rode my bike over to her headquarters one day when she was running for Congress, and Sydney, I never looked back. I, I, I just became part of my life from the age of twelve to sixty-one years old, and I have learned and experienced so much about this amazing city. It, it's it's to behold.
1: Okay. Bella Abzug, anybody who's only 11 years old may not know who she was. Tell us about Bella Abzug. She was famous. She was very colorful. Are you in politics because of Bella
0: Abzug? I think at the end of the day, that is what got me involved in politics. Uh, she was famous. She was a real advocate. You know, Think about women didn't serve in Congress back then, very few. Her campaign slogan was, This woman's place is in the house, the House of Representatives. And so she inspired me, as did my mom, when she ran as a single parent for the city council. And people would say to her all the time, Why are you running city council? You gotta take care of these kids and she'd say, What and then they would say, Well, why aren't you home cooking dinner for your husband? She says, Well, I don't have a husband, but if you can find (laughs) me one, you know, and but that's how it was back then. And we've made great strides since, but as you know Back then, it was, you know, if you're a man, we vote for you. If you're a woman, you stay home. And people like Bella and others and like yourself broke the mold.
1: Okay. First off, what you were also a Manhattan borough president. What the hell does a Manhattan borough president ever do? He poses for pictures. What I mean, what do you do?
0: Cindy Did you do? How- Cindy. You're talking about about the presidency of Manhattan.
1: Well, so what did you do with being president of Manhattan?
0: So you're right. A lot of it is cutting ribbons, and you get your own scissor, and you cut ribbons. But when you dig deeper, a lot of the decisions you make as borough president impacts land use and zoning, what gets built, what doesn't get built, Uh, how do you navigate all the different community interests, and all the different opinions in Manhattan. And as you know, living in Manhattan, uh, there's a whole lot of opinions. But look, when I was borough president, we had to expand our universities to attract talent from all over the world. But we also had to balance that with communities that didn't want to be overrun. So there was real substance to the work we did as borough president. We also put more diverse people on the boards, uh, the committee boards, because the borough presidents appoint all those committee boards. a lot of the activists that I appointed eight, nine, ten years ago today, are leaders in their communities. Some have run for office. And it's a job that, look, it's not like being the mayor, and it's not like the old days when the borough presidents literally ruled at the Board of estimate. But it's a job that, with creativity, uh, I think you can make a tremendous difference, and it's going to be interesting to see how all these new borough presidents manage their offices.
1: I think you guys just posed for pictures. I can't imagine what the hell else you ever did. I
0: I, I, I do. I did pose for a lot of pictures. And you can <laughs> yeah. see, you, know, you, could, you when I ran for mayor, people would come up to me and say, I took a picture when you were borough president. And I had a lot less gray hair. So I said, well, don't take the picture now. Use the old picture. Okay. In
1: between, somewhere along the line, what is the duties of a state assembly member? Because you were that too. What is yeah. that?
0: Well, look. In Albany, a lot of big decisions are made about New York City. And so your job as a state legislator, whether it's in the Senate or the Assembly, is to vote on all the criminal justice laws, the state budget that impacts New York City. Any piece of legislation, whether it's education, health care that's introduced, has impact all over the state. So that job gives you great perspective and great opportunity to sort of Familiarize yourself with some of the big issues of the day. When I was in the assembly, we you know I was a co-sponsor you know of the uh, Marriage Equality Act, which uh, is now something you know that we take for granted sometimes, but don't realize what a fight it was in the state you know assembly and the state Senate. Abortion rights, so the showdown was in the state Senate. So there's a lot that happens there uh, in Albany, away from public view that impacts us greatly.
1: I mean, you do all of these wonderful, fabulous things, and the city is falling apart. Everything is falling apart, and all of you guys are doing all of these things. I don't understand why the city is falling apart.
0: No, I think, it, look, I think it's a combination of things. We didn't have great stewardship in the last eight years in the mayor's office, but I also think look, COVID impacted us in a way we couldn't imagine. We weren't prepared. Uh, we see what's happening in the quality of life, the fact that during COVID we couldn't even pick up the garbage. Uh, and now we have an opportunity with the new administration and Eric Adams and other people coming into government to bring the city back to life. But I'm a believer in the city because I've seen this before. I saw it as a kid growing up in the 70s when people thought we were dead, bored to New York City, dropped dead. I saw it after 9-11 when people couldn't wait to get out of the city, but we came back. Even after the fiscal crisis in 2008, the naysayers said New York was dead. And they're saying the same thing today. But I don't bet against our city. I don't bet against our people. There's a reason why people from all over the world want to come and live here. They like the way we talk, the way we walk, who we are, how we interact. There's no other other place like this in the world. So we're going to come back. But we never do it easy, do we? It's always the hard way that I
1: actually I don't think anything is so great about this new mayor. So far, he brought in Biden, who didn't even know where the hell he was. He's too fragile. He had no interest. He was reading everything. And Adams is only on television. I don't know that he's made any time to be in City Hall at all. And the only person he actually personally selected was this lousy guy, Bragg, who is a pig. As far as being a DA now, have you got anything you'd like to say?
0: I think I should interview you. Uh, (laughs) So, so, so here's the thing. I I think we got to take a deep breath and let the mayor be the mayor. There's going to be plenty, plenty of time for us to critique him or praise him. But remember, we're not, we haven't even been a month into the new term. I do give him high marks for moving around the city. No, he's not
1: doing anything.
0: No, 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 but, but but let's see in his proposals in his budget what he actually does, and then there's going to be plenty of time to take a look and say did we make the right decision? But it still is very early, and I know that a lot of people are frustrated with the state of play today, but we also have to you know people voted they voted to elect them we have to respect that. And then we have a right to critique him. And by the you way, you know you're I, becoming
1: boring. You're a pain in the ass. You're doing. You're saying the same things all politicians.
0: Say. No, I'm saying. No, I'm saying this. By the way, if I was controller, I would probably already be doing ten audits of him and, and <laughs> doing what I did with De Blasio. So, so believe me, I would be. I would be all over him. You know. But as a private citizen, I, as you mentioned, I got two kids. I got to give him time so that we can succeed. That's all I'm saying. Uh, But as you know, I was not shy about criticizing the governor, the mayor. I gave it as good as I took it. And uh, as a private citizen, I'm going to continue uh, to say it like I mean it. And part of it is saying, hey, let's give the guy a little. uh, Okay, we
1: know we know you made a try to run for mayor. Are you going to make another run someday for mayor?
0: You know, when Koch lost the last term. He said, now that I've lost, the people will be punished.
1: <laughs> yeah, I remember that. I remember that. nothing happened before me. Nothing, nothing, nothing. Abraham Lincoln knew me. So I know it. <laughs> no, you've, you've, I know,
0: I know you've it told, all. You've, you've told me about your meetings with him over dinner. They were pretty amazing. Uh, yeah. Um, my wife didn't believe me. I said, no, she she knew Lincoln. Um
1: Take it easy, uh, pal. Yeah. <laughs> what are you doing now besides insulting me?
0: What are you doing? Oh, I would never insult. Um, I'm gonna. I have a small consulting business, and I I have clients, and they're great people. And I'm gonna try to make some money uh, to uh, uh, to pay for college tuition. I do think down the line, I expect to run again for what I don't know. But look, it's in my blood. It's what I've done all my life. I love government service, but I also, you know, let people miss me a little bit.
1: Tell us, what is the story of our economy now? We are very highly taxed. We have garbage in the streets. We can't go from cross town to crosstown unless you're born there because there's construction everywhere. And where there's not construction, there are outdoor restaurants, so you get hit by a bus. So what is our – and I nearly got hit by a bicycle who was coming I- in the wrong direction – Can you tell me what is the story of our economy now?
0: Look, in in some respects, we've never been stronger from a budget perspective. We do have real surplus in Albany, uh, and that should continue. You know, I don't crunch the numbers like I used to, but I'm seeing a very favorable economy. But look, New York has special challenges. Even with a lot of money, we have a 9% unemployment rate. Uh, the hotels are not back, tourism isn't back. And so this next mayoral administration, they got to get cracking. They got to get to work. They got to start looking at ways to inject uh, enthusiasm into the economy. We have a affordable housing crisis, the likes we've never seen. We have people sleeping in the subways. That can't continue. So we need to have smart policies that balance a whole lot of things. So, you know, I do agree with you. At some point, the press conferences and the showmanship has to end and the real work of governing has to begin. And I expect it will.
1: Listen, half of the people in Albany are on parole. So everybody in New York is telling us making big speeches. This Eric Adams is making a speech. This pig brag who told us we shouldn't be stabbed because we really shouldn't walk into a thief's open knife blade. I mean, you're going to tell me that this is helping us.
0: Look, I, let me, I want to just say this, cause I'm going to tell you what's on my mind. Uh, even if we disagree, Alvin Bragg is a very decent human being. Uh, I think he said that he wished he had rolled out his ideas in a different format, in a different way, but let's again, give him time to show what he can do. You know, People talk about giving elected elected officials, like myself always said, the first hundred days are very meaningful. The first six months are crucial. Let's give these elected officials just some time to, to, you know, land their planes. You know, you're coming into a new office, but he's a very decent man. Uh, He's a very decent man. I have to say that.
1: I'm not sure that a decent man is the greatest thing you can ever say about a mayor. Isn't there something else? Besides decent, I'm also decent. I can't be a mayor.
0: Although you'd be a you'd be a great candidate, but maybe not mayor. Okay, so uh, you get a lot of press attention. Um, look, look. I, as a New Yorker, we got to look at the glass half full until it's not. And what I would say to people out there: Yes, we have COVID. We have an economic crisis. We've never been more on the edge than we've been in the history of this city. And now we have elected people, and we need to support them as they Ah, please,
1: are... oh, leave me alone already what? with
0: this stuff. What, what, I mean, what, I understand what,
1: that. If you were what mayor, I mean, what, what, what brilliant thing would you do? Would you do something brilliant?
0: I had 500 pages of brilliant proposals. <laughs> and I'm proud to tell you that I think Eric Adams is leafing through my book and taking the parts that he thinks will work for the city. And if he doesn't take all my suggestions, I'm going to continue to tell him that he should. How's that? Okay. Did you
1: ever goof on the job? Have you ever fallen on your behind in anything?
0: Oh, there, there are days I came home and said, you can't make this up. When you're in office for 30 years, believe me, not everything goes right. There are things that you look back on and wish you did more of. There are things you look back on and said, I wish I could do it differently. But... Alex, Cindy, I'm proud of the fact that, you know, I've had an honorable public service career unmatched in years of service, 30-some-odd years, and I think 29 years in elective office, and I'm just getting started. And I love public service, and I am going to watch out for this city in a different capacity, but count on me to speak truth to power. I'm not giving up on the city or my voice in it.
1: Tell me one of the things that I never did understand. The, the movie actress Scarlett Johansson was behind you when you were running for mayor. How did you get involved with Scarlett Johansson?
0: Well, it's a, it's a wonderful story. So when I was a young activist, I joined a group called the mitchell Residents Coalition, fighting to keep this very important middle-income housing. And I became one of its leaders as a very young kid. I was head of their political action committee. And we lobbied in Albany. We did all that. And the woman who was my co-conspirator in that organization was a feisty lady who turned out would later become Charlotte Johansson's grandmother. And once I knew that, we became quick friends. Her brother and I became big friends. He actually ended up interning and working for me. And she was fantastic during the campaign for mayor, for controller and uh she's one of the most decent new yorkers but she's like a new york city kid she went to new york city school she she's never lost her perspective on what it's like to be a new yorker and she is just one great person
1: okay one last question new yorkers have moved off to florida they're in the that's to me the land of snakes and alligators and people waiting to go on to heaven Will yeah. some of them I mean. move back to us?
0: Yeah, because here's the here's the problem that people don't realize. When you leave New York City and you move to Texas, you actually have to live in Texas. When you move <laughs> to Florida, you're yeah. stuck with snakes, alligators, but also humidity. I mean, who in their right mind would move to Florida and, and sit in air conditioning for half the year? The whole thing doesn't make sense to me. They will come back as the city comes back because... No one can, no real New Yorker can stand being somewhere else. And one of the successful things of New York Cindy, is people come from all over the world to live here, all different countries, all different states. No one really wants to live in Iowa. Of course they don't. So they spend their yeah, whole right. time right. trying to figure out how the hell to get out of there. And <laughs> that's been the great New York City tradition. I mean, could you, if one of my little kids said to me, Daddy, I'm moving to Iowa, I'd be like, what? What? No. No. So I think that's our special thought. People who want to come here, and they're going to come here.
1: Okay. I got to thank you because you weren't as boring as I thought you might have been. <laughs> and you were very interesting. And I thank you very, very, very much, Scott Stringer. I enjoyed it. Thank you, sweetheart.
0: Thank you. You're the best. Goodbye. Bye. A name you know who's in the know. It's The Cindy Adams Show, 77 WABC. Hey.
1: Welcome back. I'm going to tell you some more stories. I'm just in the mood, and I feel like telling some stories. Howard Safer just called me. He was New York City's police commissioner, 1996 to 2000. Now he's been operating his own security firm. He said to me, I am calling you from my car. It's a 3,000-pound vehicle. I said, yeah, so? So what? He said, it has protection. It comes with paperwork. It has licenses. It requires insurance. Yeah, yeah. So so what's your point, I'm saying? He said, well, where is protection when someone buys a gun? 99% of guns are per- purchased legally from gun dealers, but then they get stolen, resold, or they get diverted to criminals. At that point, no record exists. No paperwork, no way to trace its path or original purchase. There is no license anywhere. You have to issue a new requirement once each year. Every year, the original gun purchaser must bring that weapon in for an annual safety check. If not, they are issued a fine. Plus, they need to explain how was the gun lost, where was it lost, why was it lost. These are things that must get reported to the police. Said Howard Safer, The idea has been said before. But why have those measures not been instituted? The real reason is the powerful gun lobby. It's because the NRA opposes it. Unlike, he said, owning a car. There exists no policy. Why no mandated insurance if someone owning a gun harms someone or does something illegal? Shouldn't each purchaser be required to have insurance? This is from Howard Safer, who was New York City's police commissioner, 1996 to 2000. He said, Officials just make speeches. They want to get elected. They make great phrases. They do nothing. People are killing people in New York and throughout the rest of the country. People are killing people on the streets, in the trains, in shops. I'll tell you why this doesn't stop and why there is no insurance and why there is no paperwork. Because the gun lobby is that strong. That from Howard Safer. Okay, now I'm going to go into something else. I wouldn't mind for a moment or two peeing on Prince Andrew. Handy, Andy, dandy, randy, Andy. I happen to know that people who were royals and then become un do not live on a very super-high scale. When the palace dissolves your title, and favors, and far-away big-time things, what is life like? When you are removed from the crown, how do you survive? I have reported that a while back, like long time back, I was at the Waldorf, when we still had the Waldorf, and we still had then the unroyal Duchess of Windsor. I was interviewing her. She was now not so important, and her husband the Duke was also not so important. So Prince Andrew should pay attention, because if he doesn't end up in the can or somewhere else, he will also be not so important, nor will he be so rich. So the Duchess of Windsor says to me at the time I'm interviewing her in the Waldorf, her exact words, our lifestyle will end up busting the Duke and I. First of all, the English is incorrect. She said we cannot holiday here at the Waldorf very much longer if "'At all anymore. "'We cannot come here again. "'The reason being the rates are high. "'We no longer have that kind of cash. "'Everyone thinks the Duke and I are rich. "'It is not true. "'Right now he's inside handling his investments. "'What I later learned, her attendance was at certain VIP galas, particularly in Palm Beach, when Palm Beach was really posh and the rich, really rich people were having galas. She would be invited, the Duchess of Windsor. She would attend. And why would she intend? It was in return for gifts of jewelry. She was paid with a diamond bracelet from Cartier or something else from Tiffany. I know because I did the story. So, this X-H-R-H, Prince Andrew, if you're going to invite him for a PB&J in a couple of months, he might accept if you give him a shiny new pair of cufflinks.
0: (laughs) It's the Cindy Adams Show, 77 WABC.
1: Listen, we got plenty of problems in New York. But New York is still better than any other place in the world. If you want to live in Iowa, lots of luck. But if you want to live in California, not everyone does. Julianne Moore once told me, We were sitting and we were talking. Julianne Moore is a big star, she has awards, she's beautiful, she's happily married, she has two grown children, she lives in a brownstone in Chelsea, or did, I, she, I think she may have sold it, but she lived for years in a brownstone. She said to me, the only way a movie star has a chance of staying married, and to keep married, and to have a home, with children, and to live in an actual life is if you stay and live in New York. New York is life. Hollywood is isolation. This from Julianne Moore. She said to me, in California, in Hollywood, you go from behind electronic gates into your locked car which takes you to another place behind more security gates. In New York, you can stand on a stoop. You can collect your mail. You can see your neighbors. You can walk the streets. You can window shop. You can go in a restaurant easily. You can go in a supermarket. You're sometimes in an elevator. You can take your kid Or your dog to the park. With New York, there's a sense of reality, honesty, interaction, real life. I would never live in California. And I want you to know, not every one of us thinks celebrities have it easy. I am not saying I am a celebrity. I am not saying that at all. But all of us have our problems. I have recently gone through a bad time with a little, not CV, but I had the other thing, and I had some difficulties with it. And I had in my hand one day a house key and a letter that was important. So what I did was I threw the letter in the john and I mailed the house key. So it's not just people like you out there. It's all of us. And I want to tell you about my friend, Judge Judy. Judge Judy is my close friend of 20, maybe 25 years. We first met one another when she was just beginning her big experience. We both shared a bank and a bank teller and a bank manager. And I used to go in to the bank manager with my dog, who would always do something bad. And the manager said, You know, I have another client who has a dog, but the dog is so well-behaved. Why don't I put you together with this lady? And I said, Yeah, fine. What's this lady's name? And she said, It's Judy. I said, okay, so what's Judy do? And she says, well, she's starting some sort of a little show. I said, give me her number. So I called Judy the next day, early. We made a date to meet for dinner. We were going to go out for dinner. So she calls me before we go out for dinner, and she says, listen, I know we have to get to know one another and I know we're going out to have dinner, and I look forward to it. I read your column. I know who you are. I, I'm very eager to, to make an a, a, a friendship, but I can't go out because Lulu doesn't want it. Lulu's upset. So I said, well, it, it, it take I don't know who the hell Lulu is, but take her along. What's the difference? We'll make threesome. She says, I can't. Lulu doesn't want to go. She's in a bad mood, and she's upset. So she says, instead of our going out, and having dinner come over to my apartment it's not far away from you and I'll send in for some food I said okay so I go over to her apartment which was then on the east side of New York Lulu was her shih tzu she wouldn't go out to dinner because her shih tzu Lulu didn't want her to leave And was cranky and was having a fit. And because of Lulu, she wouldn't go out to dinner and she wouldn't come to meet me. So I went to meet her. And we bonded over a dog. And that's how Judge Judy and I have become friends forever and ever and ever and ever. And she is now one of my legal guardians judge Judy who by the way one day was so was so busy in florida she was in a gymnasium she was doing 10 minutes in a, on a on a cycle and she had an appointment and she was late for the appointment and her husband jerry called and said hurry up you're going to be late so what she did is run over there and she ran in such a hurry she put her wig on backwards And that's how she met the important people at CBS, with her wig on backwards. So what I'm telling you is, if it's happening to you kids, it's happening to us all. Okay, listen, I'm signing off. It's time to give the microphone over to my next person on this station. But before I go, I just want to say, If you're not feeling well, I understand it. Nobody here is feeling well. Nobody is happy. Nobody is feeling successful. Nobody is feeling healthy. Everyone is seeing doctors. One told his patient not to drink, smoke, overeat, or dissipate. In other words, said the doctor, do nothing that could interfere with his bill. Only in New York, kids. Only in New York. I love you. I'll see you again next week, same time.